Hello and welcome to the February 4th, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine Highlights Podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, to give a quick summary of the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. I'll start with articles published online first on January 28th. Heart failure affects 26 million people globally and is a leading cause of hospitalization among older adults. Yet, despite dozens of studies on methods for reducing rehospitalizations in older patients with heart failure, the great majority of patients still receive usual care, which is careful medication reconciliation, an outpatient follow-up appointment, and some education. The first article I'll mention explores whether more intensive transitional care service interventions could be a way to reduce rehospitalizations and improve patient outcomes. Researchers from Stanford University created a microsimulation model using clinical trial, registry, and hospital data to assess the cost-effectiveness of three types of post-discharge heart failure transitional care services. The interventions assessed included disease management clinics, nurse home visits, and nurse case management, and the patients studied were those with heart failure who were aged 75 at the time of hospital discharge. The researchers found that all three transitional care interventions examined were more costly but also more effective than standard care, with nurse home visits dominating the other two interventions. Compared with standard care, nurse home visits increased quality-adjusted life years and cost, resulting in an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of $19,570 per quality gained. Of note, according to the researchers, each of the transitional care interventions studied resulted in important improvements in health outcomes and the differences among them were modest. The authors suggest that it is highly unlikely that standard care post-discharge management is more cost-effective than any of the transitional care services they studied. An accompanying editorial notes that transitional care services are not yet standard because initiating them can be complicated and include upfront costs that must be shouldered by healthcare providers and may not be reimbursed by payers. Next is a case report from a physician who was a passenger on a recent airline flight when he responded to a flight attendant's request for a doctor on board. The flight attendant suspected that a young male passenger was having a stroke, which would require an emergency landing. A medical emergency during a commercial airline flight may require an unplanned landing, which disrupts travel plans and can be very costly. Therefore, it is important to know the difference between a true medical emergency and something that does not require an unplanned aircraft landing. The author found the plane passenger suffering from sudden onset ear pain, slurred speech, drooling, and a complete right-sided facial droop. The man had lost his forehead wrinkles and could not close his right eye, but had no mental symptoms and still had his physical strength. When the man reported that he had recently recovered from a cold and that his symptoms began during ascent, the author determined that there was no reason to deter the plane. The man's symptoms were caused by declining atmospheric pressure in the cabin, causing a relative increase in middle ear pressure from a blocked eustachian tube that was transmitted to the branches of the seventh nerve as they ran through his middle ear. This condition, known as facial barotrauma, can occur during ascent in scuba divers, during flight, during land travel at high altitudes, after certain operations on the middle ear, and with some structural disorders of the middle ear. The paralysis usually resolves within 15 to 30 minutes after maneuvers to reduce middle ear pressure, such as yawning, swallowing with pinched nostrils, and the valsalva maneuver. 
Breathing oxygen-enriched air improves tissue oxygenation, which also helps. Next is a commentary on the quality of nutrition research by Dr. Ross Prentice of the University of Washington. Dr. Prentice notes the limitations of much currently available nutrition research and offers suggestions for improving the quality of evidence related to the health effects of what we eat. The authors of the second commentary published on January 28th attempt to answer the question, who owns sepsis? They note that critical care physicians founded the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, promulgated the Surviving Sepsis Campaign guidelines, popularized the principles of early recognition and bundled care, and spearheaded the latest overhaul of sepsis definitions. Yet they note underappreciated, yet they note, yet they note an underappreciated consequence. The critical care perspective on sepsis is born of the experience of treating the sickest subset of patients. The authors believe that the next step is to better address the full spectrum of illness encompassed by sepsis. They believe that expanding the circle of sepsis stakeholders will help bring more awareness and balance to the plurality of patients with sepsis who are diagnosed and treated outside of intensive care units. Fueling controversy over the high cost of prescription drugs in the U.S. has been the substantial contribution of the federal government to the development of many products. A quarter of new drugs over the past decade had key late-stage contributions from publicly funded research, most commonly by the National Institutes of Health, prompting concern that Americans are paying twice for these expensive medications. Senators and other policymakers have proposed NIH should more actively work to ensure fair pricing of drugs developed with its support. Critics have noted that such an intervention was attempted in 1989, but NIH stopped it just five years later because of concerns that it chilled government industry collaboration. The authors of a third January 28th commentary review this episode to better understand the rationale for the fair pricing condition and the impact of its removal. They then offer recommendations on how NIH can incorporate a reasonable pricing condition for drugs developed with taxpayer money that preserves necessary incentives for bringing these drugs to market. The final January 28th article presents the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors' recommendations for the disclosure of authors' interests when submitting manuscripts to medical journals. Moving to material published on February 4th. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices released its 2020 recommended immunization schedule for adults with changes to the administration of the influenza, human papilloma, virus, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, meningococcal B, and pneumococcal conjugate vaccines. The schedule, which can be complex and challenging to implement, features revised content, format, and graphics to make it easier to follow. The complete schedule, including changes in the vaccine notes section, was published online at annals.org on February 4th. The schedule is streamlined for ease of reference. Physicians should pay careful attention to the details found in the vaccine notes section as they clarify who needs what vaccine, when, and at what dose. In addition to changes in the administration of some vaccines, the 2020 schedule includes new instructions for shared clinical decision-making for several vaccines. The study reported in the next article described trends in primary care visits among adults enrolled in a large national commercial insurer. The researchers found that rates of primary care visits decreased by 24% from 2008 to 2016, and the proportion of adults with no primary care visit in a year increased from 38% to almost 
Specialist visit rates remained essentially unchanged, whereas visits to urgent care centers sharply increased. The largest declines in primary care visits occurred in young adults, persons without chronic conditions, and those living in low-income areas. The authors note that these changes seem to be associated with either real or perceived decreased need for primary care services, rising financial barriers, and increased use of alternative venues of care. The author of an accompanying editorial suggests that declines in primary care visits may be an unintended consequence of money-saving efforts of large insurers that push patients to curb unnecessary healthcare use in an uncoordinated healthcare system. Falls are very common in acute care settings and may result in serious injury. Up to 1 million hospitalized patients fall each year, and as many as one-third of those falls are considered preventable. Preventing in-hospital falls has been a Joint Commission National Patient Safety Goal. The use of bedside sitters to provide patients at risk for falls with constant supervision is a practice rooted in tradition, but their use is expensive. Determining how effective they are for preventing falls is important for patients and providers. Researchers from the West Los Angeles Veterans Affairs Medical Center reviewed published evidence about the effect of sitters and alternatives to sitters on patient falls in adults in acute care hospitals. Of 20 studies meeting inclusion criteria, only two added sitters to usual care and had conflicting results. 18 studies compared alternatives to sitters. From those, the investigators found moderate certainty evidence that interventions that included video monitoring decreased sitter use without adversely affecting fall rates when compared to the use of sitters. They found little convincing evidence that close observation units or nurse assessment tools were effective alternatives. While there is a lack of evidence to support the use of one-to-one -one bedside sitters, the rationale for their use to prevent falls might be sufficiently compelling that it is premature to conclude that their use should be abandoned. Most of the articles in the February 4th print issue were initially published online first and discussed in prior podcasts. New material in the issue includes an on-being-a-doctor essay, a beyond-the-guidelines grand rounds, and in-the-clinic review. In Beyond the Guidelines, two experts in transgender medicine discuss appropriate care for transgender women with anxiety and hypertension. The experts and the patient agree that her case should be managed in primary care and that the topic of caring for transgender patients should be included in general medical training. This is an important point as transgender patients face discrimination in the healthcare setting and may not have access to medical professionals who can provide competent care. Urinary incontinence in women is the topic of this month's In the Clinic Review. Go to annals.org or the print issue for current advice on preventing, diagnosing, and treating this very common condition. And the latest Annals on Call podcast features the topic of GLP-1 inhibitors in the management of patients with type 2 diabetes. That brings me to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I encourage you to go to annals.org to take a look at some of the articles I've mentioned. As always, there are many opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit if you do. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.